Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet Respiratory Medicine podcast. My name is Nikolai Humphreys. Today's episode looks into a new series published in the journal on pleural disease. I'm joined on the line by two of the series authors to discuss, amongst other things, the past, the present and future direction of the disease and how to rethink the management of spontaneous pneumothorax. Here are the authors introducing themselves. I'm Dr. Nick Maskell and I'm a reader of respiratory medicine at the University of Bristol and an honorary consultant at North Bristol NHS Trust. So my name is Najib Rahman and I'm director of the Oxford Respiratory Trials Unit and consultant respiratory physician in Oxford. Najib, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Nick, could you start by taking us through some of the topics covered in the series? Yes, this series aims to cover three distinct areas in pleural medicine, pneumothorax, pleural infection, and pleural malignancy. All of these conditions are regularly seen by respiratory physicians worldwide, and up to now there's been a lack of good quality research in these areas, but we believe that this is rapidly changing, and these articles discuss these recent advances and future directions in management and treatment of these conditions. I would add that plural disease is becoming a subspeciality interest in its own right, and I think there are two drivers to that. Uh, one is that there are a number of techniques that are required by the plural specialist, which are most easily unified in one person and one service. And secondly, there's an increasing amount of good quality clinical trials data, as Nick has alluded to, uh, which means that the field is rapidly changing. And that means that one needs specialists who um, do plural disease as, as a particular area of interest in order to maintain good quality practice. Thank you. The first series paper is on pleural infection. What are some of the most important recent developments? So pleural infection is uh, an important illness, not only because it remains common, but also because the outcomes clinically are very poor. So we still recognize that up to a fifth of patients acquire thoracic surgery or die from pleural infection, and that's despite its recognition many thousands of years ago. The main areas that I see of development within this disease are an increasing understanding of the microbiology of the disease. This has been led by good quality basic clinical studies, but also some more scientific and blue sky thinking around the genetic analysis of the microbiological profile. And that's really led us to understand how the pathophysiology might occur. Although we had previously assumed that plural infection always was derived from an associated parenchymal infection or pneumonia, um, the microbiology certainly doesn't suggest that that's the case, and there's interesting evidence from where else the infection may come, including uh, oral commensals or gastric aspiration, for example. And then secondly, at the other end of the spectrum, we now have a new treatment for pleural infection in the form of intrapleural TPA and intrapleural DNA treatment. That's an exciting new treatment in the hands of the physician, but it also may tell us something about the underlying biology, that it isn't just septation formation that matters, but also either the presence of DNA causing increased viscosity, but maybe even the presence of biofilms within the pleural space causing persistent infection. So that offers us a new treatment option and its, its role needs to be defined, but also might tell us about the underlying biology. And how do you see research progressing in this field? 
I think viral infection is an important area for future clinical research, not least because the outcomes are so poor. So we've got a lot of tractable clinical improvement that could be the subject of future clinical studies. The three main areas that I would see as developing are firstly in a more deeper understanding of the microbiology associated. And I don't just mean the population of um, microbiological organisms, but also how they get there, what their relationships are with the infected lung and the infected pleural space, and how this uh, develops. This then leads into the second area, which is why some patients get pleural infection and others do not. Pneumonia is the commonest uh, infectious respiratory disease in the world, and yet we still don't understand why about 7 or 10% of these patients go on to have a frankly infected pleural space. And I think we need to look carefully into the microbiology, but also the host and how those two interact to form a, an infected collection of fluid in the chest. And then finally, I think we need to understand the drainage treatments much more precisely. And by that, I include surgical drainage, but also enzyme-driven drainage using TPA and DNAs. Specifically, I think we need to understand what the next treatment for these patients are once they failed initial medical therapy with a chest tube and um, antibiotics, whether it should be TPA and DNAs or whether it should be an early and non -in or, or least invasive surgical approach such as VATS. But I th also think we need to understand what the role of surgery is in these patients. At the minute, we do resort to our surgical colleagues when there's a problem, but we don't truly know the optimal time to refer nor which patients to select for referral to this very invasive treatment. Nick, if I could ask you this next question. The second series paper looks at the management of spontaneous pneumothorax. Could you start by explaining to our listeners how is this managed at present? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, I think we all know that pneumothorax is a common condition and one that respiratory physicians uh, deal with on a regular basis. Traditionally, um, guidelines have separated pneumothorax into primary pneumothorax with no known underlying lung disease and secondary pneumothorax, usually with underlying chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or interstitial lung disease. This separation is often quite arbitrary um, and in the guidelines based on age, uh, below or above the age of 50, um, and a significant smoking history. And I think that this is probably an oversimplification. Primary spontaneous pneumothorax is then treated per current guidelines with simple aspiration if the patient is symptomatic initially, and if this fails, patients often require chest tube drainage and consideration of a surgical VATS procedure if there's a persistent air leak um, between three and five days later. Secondary spontaneous pneumothorax, on the other hand, always need to be admitted for at least observation, and if the pneumothorax is large enough, then many of these will require chest tube drainage and they tend to have a more prolonged hospital stay and some of them are not fit enough for definitive surgical treatment because of the severity of their underlying lung disease. So that's currently what the guidelines suggest or how the guidelines suggest we manage these people. Thanks. Could you shed some light on the clinical need and perhaps tell us a bit about future research for improving management? I think the most important thing that this article highlights is that there is a distinct lack of good quality RCT data in this field of pneumothorax treatment and management. There are many important things that we still don't know. These are relatively simple things such as what is the true incidence of primary and secondary spontaneous pneumothorax and what is the actual risk of recurrence after the patient's first episode. 
And until we've got a good handle on those things, it's very difficult to actually try and get tailored management for these patients. The old classification is very crude, and it's based on this assumption that a lot of people with primary spontaneous pneumothorax don't have any underlying lung disease. But there is increasing data that a lot of these primary spontaneous pneumothorax do have some underlying lung disease, and there is CT evidence that a lot of these patients have early emphysematous-like changes, many of whom are smokers, and it's interesting that getting a primary spontaneous pneumothorax patient to stop smoking does decrease the risk of getting a recurrence. I think that there are lots of new areas where there is active research going on at the moment that will inform and improve guidelines in the future. There's a large Australian RCT looking at conservative management in primary spontaneous pneumothorax, and that's discussed in the paper. Increasingly, people are moving towards ambulatory Heimlich valves to treat and manage primary spontaneous pneumothorax, and hopefully more research will ensue in this area. And people are starting to use digital recorded chest drains to actually record the air leak in people that have got a chest tube um, in situ, and that might also inform uh, the patient's management. I think there's a need for us to develop a good risk stratification scoring system so that we can try and inform our patients better um, at their first presentation what their actual risks are of having a recurrent episode, and that might well also inform the clinician's view on when surgical intervention is when should be necessary. My final question, the series includes a linked comment on malignant pleural effusion and the increasing prominence of individualized management. What are the factors that should affect management decisions for MPE and what are the different treatment options that are currently available? Sure, I think that uh, malignant pleural effusion management is often quite tricky because the patient group is very diverse and their prognosis is very varied from one type of malignancy to the next. It's therefore very difficult sometimes to offer a tailored management plan to an individualized patient without knowing what their rough prognosis is. And for the first time, a prognostic score called the LENT score has been validated that might help patients and physicians estimate what their expected survival is, and that might help tailor uh, the right malignant pleural effusion management option to that particular patient. I think increasingly we're seeing dedicated ambulatory pleural services spring up in many of the major hospitals, and this is starting to develop much more patient-centered outpatient care. This is largely driven by the fact that we have indwelling pleural catheters, which are tunneled catheters um, that can be placed as a day case, and then the patient can be managed effectively in the community, avoiding the need for recurrent hospital visits. We're also seeing the use of medical and surgical thoracoscopy increase across Europe, and this has a very important role in the diagnosis and pleural fluid control of patients with malignant pleural effusions. If, if I could come in there as well, I, I think the other aspect of individualized management is that the data that's currently being collected in the very important clinical trials being run, I think will hugely inform this field because actually, the studies being run, such as TAPS and IPC+, Plus, in my view, are going to be fairly transformational. The reason for that is that there is a novel 
or, or under investigation treatment strategy like there has been in randomized trials over the last 20, 30 years. But the difference is that the outcome is patient-centered. And this has been a dawning realization, I think, within the community that does research in plural disease in general, but specifically malignant diffusion, that if we're doing a treatment which is aimed at patient symptoms and patient benefit, then the outcome has to be closely related to that. And I think we will finally, once these trials report in the next few years, be in the position of having rational discussions with our patients and indeed the people that commission care uh, in order to demonstrate what the best way of solving symptoms are for these patients who, after all, have come to see us because they are symptomatic. So that's certainly the first large step that will come. Uh, the second, I think, is that as we begin to understand that patients at baseline have very different prognoses because of the factors identified in the Lent uh, study, and, and, and I'm sure that, that that will be validated and replicated elsewhere, that gives us an opportunity to ask the question why they have different prognosis at baseline and once again un try to unpick the underlying progressive biology of the malignant disease. What leads to these patients getting worse? Why do they have a different prognosis? And we finally in plural medicine now have the tools to unpick those factors. Najib Rahman, Nick Maskell, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with the Lancet Respiratory Medicine. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks.